the cultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Tonight, interview time with author, historian, and big fan of Bellelli's hot mom, Thaddeus Russell. He'll take us on a historical journey from the sad tale of the Marymount Settlement through the underground Russian jazz clubs, all the way down to the invention of time, while simultaneously defending Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan, and delivering historian-breaking roundhouses. And now, quietly awaiting my one-way ticket to Guantanamo, I'm Rich Evers, and my partner in crime, answering hopelessness with a defiant smile and a raised middle finger, Daniel Bolelli, along with our internet guru, Evan Culver. Away we go. And welcome back, everybody. Unbelievably, episode lucky number 13... And I'm um, still fucking sick. Well, that was going to say, back from the deathbed, Daniele Bolelli. Yeah. Now I'm sick with something else. Before I had some weird mystery illness. Now I'm just... Now it's actually cool because I have some mix of cold and allergies and stuff, which makes my sexy voice even... Even a couple octaves lower. Yeah. I want to uh, talk down there with you as well so I can... Uh, we are having a, an incredible, like, 20-year pollen event in, in Los Angeles. Is that what's going on? Yeah, it's exactly what's going on. So. But uh, the plants are striking back. You ever do you ever see the movie um, Army of Darkness? Of course. Now with this voice, I can say, "Hey, baby, give me some sugar." <laughs> I've been dreaming of this moment for the last two days. Ever since my voice <laughs> went away, when I would be able to see that. So uh. I will have you know, um, I, I went and saw The Hobbit at the five dollar theater. Oh yeah, yeah, and I enjoy being back in Middle Earth, but man, it wasn't long. Yeah, well, I mean. They gotta get that shit trimmed down. Yeah. No, I want the extended version. Do you really? Yeah. Well, if it wasn't all the chases, it seems that that's, no. gets to be the ridiculous thing. It's too much. Yeah. But overall, it was nice to be back, and I did enjoy it. Yeah. Especially since it was only five dollars instead of fifteen. That helps for sure. Anyway, an incredible interview today, guys. So we'll have to get everything out of the way quickly. But I could not be more excited. I'm gonna shred this book as soon as I get to the house. And he means it as in reading it, not well, yeah, as in yeah, yeah, shredding yeah. it. Not as we're going to start a fire Actually, there are it. quite a few people who may think shredding in other sense because they would be I deeply offended by this book. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, let's get the ball rolling. First off, gigantic thank you to Datsusara, our sponsor, who makes all of this possible. Um, so, yeah, man, I just don't even know what to say. This is so cool. It's like he has stepped up being the first one not to be just an affiliate, but to actually get us some funds to get the show rolling. Awesome thing to do. Cool. We love you for that. And the best part about it is that for you guys listening, not only you get the show that we are able to keep doing it if we have sponsorship, but also uh, if you are interested in some of the products, they actually happen to be awesome products, you know, computer bags, backpacks, uh, gi if you roll jujitsu. Uh, there's a bunch of really cool stuff he makes, all handmade, which means um, squashes microbes left and right. The <laughs> micro ninja. Yeah, micro ninja <laughs> weaved inside the actual hemp. Uh, great, way better than cotton from an environmental standpoint. You know, hemp is... You know, I like it philosophically to begin with as an awesome thing and add the fact that the products actually come out really freaking nice. That's a big. So, you know, if you are in the market for one of those things, by all means, show our sponsor some love and we'll deeply appreciate that. Um, 
Thank you guys. Um, Rich and Devon has been super nice that to cater to my sick self lately. So they, you know, coming over here to my place to record episodes rather than having to go to the studio made life so much easier. So thank you guys so much. Oh, butchering time or whatever is said. Well, I love the idea of the of the I've been butchered uh, t-shirt. This <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Can yeah. it require a little more uh, discussion? But I don't want to steal anybody's idea because it is brilliant. I've been butchered. Yeah. Let's do this. So, so maybe it's on a t-shirt, maybe it's a bumper sticker or, or something like that, but it is a fantastic idea. Yeah, we received, so you know uh, we received an email suggesting that as uh, people who donate, we should make a I've been butchered t-shirt uh, and with some drunken Taoist logo or something. That would be fun. Let me just figure out the logistics. How, uh, just because especially if you live internationally, maybe problematic because it costs so much in expeditions and you have to put more money. You know, We'll see, but the idea is awesome. Let's see if we can actually make it happen. But yeah, speaking of mispronouncing people's names, um, thank you guys too. Keith Lombard, I think I pulled that off. Sean Faust, I think I pulled that off. Angelo Diaz, oh my God, I'm on a roll. Michael Moon, yes, foreigner. Oh, fuck, my, my streak comes to an end on number five. Lars Christian Bjorkness, somewhere in, the, in that neighborhood. Luke Brandon, David Arthur. Uh, Frederico Faro, Vladimir Teslenko, Ryan Hoyt, uh, Michael Wood, Stelian Cinku, King Cinku, I assume C I N C U. Uh, you actually sent me an email telling me how it's pronounced, and of course I forgot because I don't know. I, would, I wish there was an ending to because, but there isn't, so sorry. Stelian Cinku. If it's not your last name, it is now. Um, Eugene, oh, fuck your last name. I'm assuming if it's a French thing, we would say Le Livre or something like that. If it's not, I have no idea. Is Eugene La Livre, Le Livre, something. But you come from the coolest part of the world. I mean, the name that I got on the... It is a man who donated to us from New Zealand, which is like nice, but whatever. What's the point? No, not from New Zealand, from... Waipukurau, New Zealand. Or Absolutely. I'm sure it's pronounced differently, but I mean, what the hell? We got a donation from Waipukurau, New Zealand. I'm so happy. <laughs> Shannon Kowie, Kui, Ku something, C O U E Y. Jan, oh, fuck Jan, I don't know. Is your last name? S N E S R U D, Znesrud. I don't know. Sorry, man. I think they're making these up. Yeah, I think so. Just to fuck with me. Um, and then could be Danielle Pierce, Danielle Pierce, something like that, or P-E-A-R-S-E. Okay, fuck, I can't pronounce English. So now that we established that, thank you guys to all of you. Um, we'll, because we'll also be adding a little bit of affiliates in the future, we're not there yet, but we'll have a couple more people jump in. What we're going to do is I'm just going to quickly scream, scheme through affiliate each time, like giving it 30 seconds and then pick one on a rotating basis where I'll dedicate a little more space for today's just big thank you to our affiliates, Kurokao Chocolate. So you guys want chocolate, you know where to go. All of this stuff is referenced in the episode notes, so I don't spend too much time. If you are interested in this thing, check the episode notes and you get your links. All of them have discounts associated with them. So you'll, you know what to do. Audiobooks, again, if you guys drive a lot or that's the way to go. So audiobooks, the audible.com link. Uh, 
Sure Design t-shirts, the awesome human who made our t-shirt this time around. I really like his regular stuff. I like the shirts he made for us. If you want our shirts, again, email me because now we're done with pre-orders. Send me emails. And by the way, I got some emails and you guys are funny people. Sometimes you guys email me, tell me what you want. I get back to you. You tell me, yes, that's awesome. We go back like three times and then it's like, okay, so, you know, let me know when you're ready. It's like, never hear from you again. It's like, motherfuckers complicated they just life. like interacting with you not enough is it like a, <laughs> a goal checked off the old bucket list <laughs> that's all good no either way but yeah so if you guys want t-shirts either the sure design products or drunken taoist um check the episode notes last but not least well not actually not last um daisy house music the guys who make our um, intro song who gave us the intro song um there's a link for their full album in the episode notes and um anybody who donated will donate or even just to end up buying a copy of my book that just came out in these days shoot me a message letting me know that either you donated and i forgot about it or uh, you just bought a book and i'll email you back this pdf i put together of quotes and aphorisms some taken from on the warrior's path some from create your own religion some is unpublished things and uh, you know if you buy books it's just your word you know i don't need a receipt or anything just tell me i bought the book i send you the pdf and life is good um clearly amazon links if you guys you guys have been awesome with the amazon link thank you for that and since today we're going to be speaking for a long time about the book a renegade history of the united states if you guys decide you want to check it out please remember to do so by going through our amazon link that would be wonderful do anything else that we need to address before we jump into the interview uh, well, we were going to talk about the uh, forum, the user forum that I think we're ready to launch finally. So um, here in the next couple of days, maybe even tonight, we'll turn this dude on and hopefully hear some of your uh, feedback about some of the episodes and just life in general. So we're really excited about that. And uh, let us know if, if you want to see any new forums or really anything. This is kind of about the, the listeners and you know what they might have to share just just off the cuff. Who cares, right? So, so yeah, it would be great to get this we'll have a forum for each episode to discuss whatever gets to be brought up during the episode and then we'll have an everything else side so any topic you want to bring up whether it's already addressed whether it's something you want to jump in keep the discussion going get things fun you know so just be nice to each other um that would be nice because always on internet forums people become evil nasty humans please don't do that but i count on our listenership to be above the average humanity and um so yeah that would be awesome but yeah it should be up we'll have the link in the episode notes and evan anything if there are technical issues with the forums problem how do they contact you too? yeah you can just uh, email me uh just contact at the drunken works and uh, it all filters through there i can kind of field them a little bit better so yeah contact at the drunken great so if there are any problem with the forums reach anything else and nothing other than just to make sure everybody knows that if it wasn't for evan this would never happen he is yeah. truly our internet guru and, and makes all that magical stuff that after we talk it, it it makes it out to the world and i am looking forward to the everybody hates rich section of the forums so yeah, yeah, yeah. that will oh. be wildly popular <laughs> Don't you know I've already got an auto delete on that? Dude? No, no, no. I, I, I can take it. I take, oh. you know, I take it as a, uh, you know, almost as a, an award. Right. <laughs> we'll discuss, by the way, this in the next episode. Oh yeah, I can't uh, even wait for that. Episode fourteen, we'll jump into some of this. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I show up and talk into a microphone, and then everything else happened thanks to these guys. So, 
that's <clears throat> i think it's uh, mutually beneficial absolutely good life is good Thanks, then sir. well an awesome awesome interview and and a nice long one too so uh i think we should jump in okay Let's i do. just need to say one more thing ah. again because i got into it hey baby give me some sugar <laughs> Okay, here we go. Uh, today, 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 let's start up with Mr. Thad Russell, author of A Renegade History of the United States. This is, um, this is a weird story how I came across this. I was um, in Wales. Who the fuck goes to Wales, right? But I was in Wales for strange reasons. And I think the only time... Italians go to Wales all the time, right? I mean, that's because it's such a nicer country. <laughs> <laughs> the weather, especially for the weather, yeah, right? right. No, actually, I liked it. I thought Wales was awesome. It was pretty, mm-hmm. was whatever. But um, in any case, for some random, strange, possibly legal reasons, I was in Wales. And um, the one time in my life that I actually read the Huffington Post, actually, no, the, one of the two times in my life, the other time was they actually published something of mine and I read it. But other than that, I was like, you know, jet lag, whatever, in my hotel room. I'm like, I exhausted every porn site there is to watch in the universe. I need to look at something else. So let's just, ah, what the hell, why not the Huffington Post? And I ran into this article by Thad, and it was fucking awesome. It was just uh, his take on academia, on history, on... It was exactly... The reason why I say it's fucking awesome is because it mirrors my mind, which is fucking awesome. So as such, by default, that's, you know, we're on the same wavelength, which may be considered not so awesome by lots of human beings, but it is by us. And that's the only thing that matters. So, so after that, then uh, I found out I was living uh, in Santa Monica, close to where I was teaching. I was, uh, we ended up meeting up, chatting, starting to notice we share passions for the same illegal activities, for a lot of strange things, and decided, oh, this is a fun conversation. Let's keep it going. And at some point, it's like, hey, let's keep it going with some microphones too. So we got a podcast going. Thad, welcome very much to the Drunken Taoist podcast. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. I've been waiting for this. Yeah, I was keeping you in, uh, I was warming you up for it at some point. Uh, Saving the best for later. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Now let's chat, let's start uh, with your book a little bit. I was rereading it the other day and I forgot how much I enjoyed it. There were some parts that was on the floor because I was like, oh man, I love this story. The little pieces of tales in various points throughout American history that are just brilliant. The... um, you know, right from the from the start, you emphasize how this is a different type of book in the sense that the traditional conservative history is all about the great man history, you know, the heroic individuals who make history thanks to their whatever. More popular leftist post-1960s history is about the heroic masses who through self-abnegation and working hard and heroically make history. You know, in both cases is... It's either the elite or the masses, but it's basically the same mentality in terms of through the same values, through the same toughness, through the same persistence, and all of that, they make history. That's not exactly your take, right? So, no. <clears throat> but first of all, I want to know that, um, I want to be sure that 
my article for you was better than the porn you were finding? Um, Chuck, my third in porn, Jesus. You didn't clarify that. Is was... wait, wait, what? Are you better. hesitating? Hey, depend on which porn. Let's put it that way. Wow. The okay. I'll, third... I'll still stay. That's yeah. cool. All right. <laughs> Only because I think your mom's hot, <laughs> and she's right up the hill here. Um, all right, history. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about history. <laughs> If you must drag that in. Sure. Well, I mean, the point is, his history and porn are not exactly unrelated subjects, as we'll see. So. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so pornographers are actually in the book. Um, all right. So here's the deal. So history was originally written by, you know, elite white men about elite white men. Mm -hmm. As you said, the generals, the scientists, the inventors, the presidents, the senators. That was, it's now called, that's called the old history or the his or history from the top down. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and that dominated the profession until about the 1960s, as you said. And then, you know, the radicals of the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, feminist movement came along and they had nowhere to go after they won those battles. So they went into the academy mm -hmm. and started and became professors and they've dominated our world in the academy since then, which has been uh, a mixed blessing. Um, so what they did was they replaced those generals and scientists and presidents with a new pantheon of heroes, people like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and feminists and labor leaders and uh, radicals of various stripes. And they made them into the heroes and they made the old good white guys into the bad guys. Uh, Howard Zinn, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are you know familiar with his work and People's History of the United States. He sort of put that all together and made that sort of... Um, he constructed it as a whole narrative of right. the United States. And really, he sort of flipped the script on all of historical writing in that way. Um, and that has been the sort of dominant paradigm. I mean, of course, there have been many variations on it. Mm -hmm. But he, that's been essentially the dominant paradigm right. um, since the 60s. And, you know, the, of course, that was invaluable in a lot of ways. And I could not have written my book without that. Um, what they did, though, I found after I was in the game for quite a while was that they were not aware that those civil rights leaders, those feminist leaders, labor leaders, radicals often shared the same cultural and social values as the old white guys. Right. So this country was founded upon beginning with the Puritans and it's still the case today founded upon two pillars, two cultural pillars. One is the Protestant work ethic. Mm hmm. And people get confused about the Protestant or American work ethic. They think it's often they think it's the the idea that uh, one should work hard to get a BMW or a flat screen TV, right? That's not what the Protestant work ethic preaches. It's not what the Puritans were about. That's still not what it really means. Right. What it means is that work in itself, mm -hmm. no matter what you get for it, is a good thing, mm -hmm. a virtuous thing, a godly thing. So even if you gain nothing, not a cent from it, Nothing of material gain from it. Right. You must work. Right. The Puritans believed that was the case because God insisted, you know, meant for it to be the case. Um, in the culture broadly, it sort of becomes secularized mm -hmm. so that it's become sort of a natural virtue. You know, you are a slacker is considered to be a bad person. Right? right. Slacking is considered to be bad. I mean, even I, you know, someone who's been railing against, writing against, teaching against this thing for years and years and years. Even I, at the end of the day, when I feel like, feel like I haven't done enough work, I feel bad. Right. And I have to sort of think, well, why do I feel bad? Right. right. And then I realize, oh, well, this fucking thing is internalized inside yep. of even me. Right. Right. 
So that's one pillar of America since the very beginning, since Mayflower. Um, I can see a tiny little Puritan running around in your body. Oh, yeah, totally. No, that's why I'm, that's why I, it's all self-hatred, man. But, you know, so, I mean, that's why I'm, I think that's why I'm so angry about it because I feel it inside myself. And the other one, the other pillar, um, this is maybe even more familiar to your listeners, is the um, nuclear fam, what I call the nuclear family slash anti-sex ethic, mm-hmm. right? So that means that the only good way, the only healthy, natural, and good way to live day to day is inside of a nuclear family, right? Mom, dad, kids, yep. right? On an island, the kids being raised only by those two people. Yep. Not being raised by an extended family, as is the case in most of the world, mm-hmm. or by the community, as is the case case in most of the world. Um, right. It also, of course, means no sex outside of that marriage. Right. It means that sex outside of marriage is at best tawdry, but usually seen as worse, as damaging. Mm-hmm. Right. Someone who has sex outside of marriage is essentially doing harm to themselves. And if they do it a lot and they continue to do it well into adulthood, then we all feel sad for them. Right. That's a, that's a bad way to live. Right. So America has, America has taught us that. I mean, that those are the two pillar, I believe, and many people believe this is not terribly unusual analysis, but that America has always been based on those two core cultural values. Mm -hmm. Um, so the new heroes of the new social history, the new history from the bottom up, the 19, the people that the 1960s generation brought into the historical narrative, people like Martin Luther King. So if, there's, I, do, I write a lot about King in the book. Um, if you actually look at what he had to say about cultural values and about the ways in which people should live day to day, things apart from, he connected it, but apart from integration, blah, blah. he was... You know, he sounded exactly like um, a Republican conservative today. I mean, he he told black people repeatedly and in very strong <clears throat> terms, you know, stop having sex, period, <laughs> except to procreate. Right. Stop drinking. Uh, work harder. Stop being lazy. <clears throat> he said, um, even if you're a street sweeper, you should sweep streets like Michelangelo painted paintings. Right. Uh, so that's that is the purest expression of the Protestant work ethic, right? Because even if you have the shittiest job that pays you next to nothing, you should do it beautifully and you should love it. Right. Um, so that, by the way, how does that square off with Martin Luther King's passion for hookers? Right. So there's that. I mean, there's his, his hypocrisy, right. which is well known, um, which I think is less important. I think generally speaking that public figures are important for what they do and say publicly. Sure. You know, that's how they influence the world better for better or worse. Um, plus we didn't even know about King's extramarital affairs until he was dead. But, um, but even, even if not, I mean, to me, it's what matters most is what people do in public. Now, the fact that he couldn't follow his own code does tell us something. It tells us that that code is nearly impossible to follow. Right. Absolutely. So that explains, I think why all these Republican senators, et cetera, you know, are gay and have affairs and go to strip clubs, you know, because it's, it's nearly impossible to follow that code. But nonetheless, people stick to it. And more importantly, what they do is they punish other people and themselves for yep. violations of that code. That's what drives me crazy about it. Because, I mean, once you set up that kind of code, the hypocrisy is of obviously 
screwed up because you are preaching a set of values that you don't have the balls to live up to so there's clearly something wrong with those values and or something wrong with your integrity because if you really believe that that's the way to go then fucking do it mm-hmm. the fact that you don't really rubs me the wrong way but then even if you actually do live up to those values that scares me even more you know <laughs> you may not be hypocritical i respect that but you are a fucking freak because the values you are well, preaching are scaring the hell out of me for multiple reasons i mean i don't I don't have any problem with people living like monks. I just don't want them evangelizing. Yeah, no, that's... I don't want them making me or even telling me to sure. live that way. Sure, 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 sure. If you want to go live on a hilltop no, that with I just respect. you yeah. and a robe and some sandals yeah. and some porridge to eat, yeah. fine, you know, but don't... It's, it's, it's telling me that I should do that. And yeah. worse, when they, when they force us to right. live those ways, you know, like, let's say, uh, making things that make you feel good illegal. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And putting people in prison for a mm-hmm. long time for doing nothing but consuming or selling things that make people feel good. Yep. And then profiting off their prison time. Well, yeah. I mean, then there's endless. <laughs> yeah. It goes on and on and on. Um, <clears throat> prostitution's illegal. Drugs yep. are illegal. Alcohol was illegal for a time. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, so that's those are some of the most clear remnants of our Puritan heritage. But, you know, Puritanism has been central in our culture uh-huh. to, this, to, the, to the present day. You know, when I say this to my students, they get it. Um, and then they start to, and then I say, well, hang on now. <clears throat> is that really what American culture is? It's just Puritans and three corner hats, like preaching against the devil's, mm-hmm. you know, pleasures. I say, you know, have you ever, uh, have you ever walked down a street in the United States, have you ever looked at the billboards? You know, have you ever turned on a television or surfed the internet? Of course they have. And I said, so what do you usually see there? You see chicks in bikinis and you see ads for Jack Daniels and you see hamburger commercials and you, you know, so right. it's, whoa, wait a minute, what is going on here? And right. um, I read an essay a long time ago that changed my life and it, it made this, it made sense to me. Uh, it sort of made this all understandable, which was an essay called The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, mm-hmm. written by a sociologist named Daniel Bell, in which he argues, and I think quite persuasively, that capitalism produces two contradictory cultural impulses. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> One is, or that it requires two things that are contradictory. One is incredible self-discipline. Mm-hmm. So I happen to live, this is true, I happen to live right around the corner from the world headquarters of Girls Gone Wild. Mm-hmm. You know, and I asked my students, I said, and I actually know, I happen to know a guy who worked there. And I, you know, I said, well, gee, what was it like to work in the, you know, the offices of Girls Gone Wild, right? And a little piece of me was thinking, oh my God, it was a huge hot tub in the middle of the, you know, HQ and, you know, Crystal was flowing freely and everybody was doing coke off the tops of their Macs, right? Um, <laughs> And no, he said, it's a goddamn bunch of cubicles, right? And people right. staring at screens all day and wishing they were somewhere else, having right. more fun, right? So, um, but what they're producing is, so, so capitalism, of course, requires a self-discipline, right? Mm-hmm. To get people to get up at the right. same time every day yep. and go to a place they would never go to otherwise, right? right? And to stay there and mm-hmm. to do this shit they would not do otherwise. Right all day long until the same time every goddamn day, right? That is making a, a body into a machine. That's making human, that's the uh, mechanization of human beings, right? That, that is immense. Like yeah. that, t- that requires an immense psychological transformation in people, right? Of so course. in an individual now, it's the transformation from childhood to adulthood. That's where it happens. Historically, it was the transformation from primitive 
agricultural or non-industrial economies into industrial economies. So when they invented the factories, that's when it happened, right? Right. One of the, the, the center of that was the invention of time. Mm-hmm. So time, you know, when people lived on farms, <clears throat> when did they, when did they get up and go to work? Right. It depended on the seasons, right. It depended on the, when the sun rose, right. It depended on nature, right. Not this, not this arbitrary graph imposed on the world, mm-hmm. right. Time. So that was what industrialists used to get us to go to work at the same time every day and to conform our bodies into these little boxes. Right. Right. Um, so it requires that it requires incredible self. It it requires, by the way, incredible self-discipline for the capitalists, right? It's not natural. It's not, you know, to work that hard. I mean, they work harder than the workers do, right? Right. Every capitalist I've ever known works constantly. Right. Um, and to have that kind of ambition. So it requires that. And then at the same time, it's producing all these things that are appealing directly to, and nothing more than the, our basest, what Christians would call our basest desires, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, the girl's gone wild. So they said, there's these little cubicles all day long, you know, draining their bodies of life, uh, refusing to go to the beach, refusing to have sex, refusing to drink, refusing to do, to take a nap, you know, all these things that they'd much rather be doing, but they're producing all this stuff. Right. Right. That is a direct assault, a sub- direct subversion of Puritanism. Right. Because you need a market, mm-hmm. you know, and, and capitalism understands that, that, you know, people are going to want stuff and those desires are not going to go away unless you give them lobotomies. And so if you're going to sell your, if you're going to make a living in most cases, you're going to have to sell to those things. All you're going to have to sell to all the desires that people have, right? And most of our desires are not so nice according to the Puritans. Which incidentally is one of the funniest thing about American politics where you have the people who are super gung ho about the free market are then often the same people right. who want a million restrictions. Right. So on, what, uh, what, my libertarian friends say as those people are not for a free market. Right. They are full of shit. No, of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. They are not market people no. at all. Right. So, I mean, so those are, right. The Christian conservatives who also claim to be pro market. They're also pro censorship. They're pro right. war. Yep. Right. It's want- pro market. As long as the market produces what we like. Yeah. They want, when yeah. it does what we don't like, then fuck the free market. At yeah, that exactly. Point. Yeah. Yep. They want to shut down MTV tomorrow. Of course. That's what, hello. So, um, <clears throat> so, Let's see. So it's this, it's this fascinating, endless, eternal cultural civil war mm-hmm. that we've had since the Puritans landed on that rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like it. You know, I don't, I don't want there to be a revolution of renegades. Um, and I say that, I think, on the fifth page of the book. Mm-hmm. You know, what would happen if hedonists took over? Well, our garbage would never be collected crime would be rampant right we would not be safe inside of our homes we wouldn't be doing this that's for sure. we wouldn't right. be doing this there wouldn't be these microphones there wouldn't be that <clears throat> computer there wouldn't be this house we're sitting in right nothing would get done right i mean there'd be a lot of pleasure until we all died of starvation because no one's making any food <laughs> right um so uh but then conversely you know if, what if the moral authority moral authorities the the guardians of community were the only people right jesus christ right i mean that's just everybody's a walking prison. Right. So I like that there's this conflict and I want it to continue. It's just that I generally speaking, especially in this country, since we have so many moral guardians, um, take, I tend to take the side of the renegades, right? The hedonists. So that's why I'm a huge defender of Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton. (laughs) 
people people Joe get Francis. very con- <laughs> was that Joe Francis girls and Joe Francis awesome. yeah um, you know I'm sure they're all assholes that's not the point right, right. it's that they get, actually get attacked for things that I think are good right so I mean like so take Paris Hilton right people so her fans love her but I think most people hate her she's sort of like that's what she's made her money on is people actually hating her of course so what do they hate her for right here's what they hate Paris Hilton for she doesn't have to work and doesn't work. She could work. Right. She could volunteer. She doesn't work. Nope. Okay. Remember cultural pillar number one? Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's not married and doesn't have kids. Right. Cultural pillar number two. She likes to party. She likes to drink, do drugs, go dancing, um, and be on vacation a lot. <laughs> People hate her guts for precisely those things. Right. right. Including, by the way, most feminists. Of course. Yeah. Well, so feminists used to be all for women's liberation, meaning mm-hmm. allowing women to do what they wanted to do. Yep. Which meant not being just mothers and wives. <clears throat> which right. meant not just chaining your body and your soul to the home. Right? Paris Hilton broke those chains at birth. Right. And feminists somehow find her offensive. She's doing what they used to think we should all do. What is that about? So there's a lot of confusion, especially on the left. I mean, conservatives, I have no beef with conservatives, really, because they know who they are, generally speaking, except for the people who think they're for the free market. Right. They're confused. But, you know, the true Christian conservatives, right, <clears throat> they get it. They understand. Mm-hmm. They, they know who they are. It's liberals. Drive me fucking crazy. I live to fuck with liberals, <laughs> to point out the contradictions in their little liberal minds, right? And that's one of the big ones. They preach freedom. Well, actually, they've even given up on that. But, you know, <laughs> they used to preach freedom. They, if you ask them, they'll say, oh, of course I'm for personal freedom. But then they uphold all these, these cultural values that who, who invented them? You know, old white men, right? From Scotland. <laughs> People like John Locke. Right. Thomas Jefferson, et cetera, you know kind of the devils, right? What we call bourgeois values. Um, they lost track of that entirely. They uphold those values all the time. Who's their greatest hero in the last eight years? This guy named Barack Obama. Does Barack Obama uphold Puritan values? My God, better than anyone, right? He is the embodiment of the work ethic and the family ethic, right? We don't even know that he's ever had sex, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yes, he did drugs umpteen years ago, but renounced them and said, I, you know what he said? He said, that's when I became an adult, right? The transformation from childhood to adulthood, right? It's not just personal, it's social, right? Embracing adulthood. I'm for, I'm from embracing, I'm for embracing childhood. I think we should all be children. Hmm. Back to you. When you bring up the, um, when you bring up some of the stuff about sort of this fight being from day one between the... um, on one end, uh, the people who are pursuing essentially their own pleasure, regardless of social consequence and whatever the fuck. On the other end, you have the strict Puritan. There was one guy that, in reading your book, I was digging his story quite a bit. You touch on it, maybe like a couple of pages or something. I, I wanted more on him because it sounded like a cool story. Specifically, Thomas Morton, you were talking... Well, I'll let you tell the story. Um, it yeah. just sounds insanely really good stories yeah so this is in the early 17th century this is right after the first puritan settlements in new england um you know and they're they're building these you know basically citadel to god citadels to god in new england um where there was strict you know moral codes right they banned dancing 
certainly non-marital sex. They, of course, preached the Puritan work ethic because that's who they were, right? <clears throat> um, but there were these other Englishmen who came around that time who were not down with the Puritan project. And they had no place to go, <laughs> you know, to live the way they wanted to live. Um, and so one of them, this guy named Thomas Morton, um, founded this colony right down the road from Plymouth that he called Marymount. And it was sort of the opposite of Plymouth. <laughs> At Marymount, um, they drank whiskey freely. They danced constantly, often around a maypole, but not always, whenever they wanted to. Work was seen as a means to an end, not an end in itself. Mm -hmm. And they invited the Indians to join with them in their revelries. Right. They had these great wild all-night parties with Indians, right? In which fornication and intoxication were standard. Um, it was... What went wrong? Right. Well, here's what went wrong. Um, the guys in Plymouth found out about this. Oh, and then they found out that the population of Marymount was growing faster than the population of Plymouth. <laughs> Standard, so they were, uh, they were losing out in the competition there. Um, uh, well, what they did was they raised a militia, invaded Marymount, chopped down the Maypole, arrested everyone, put them in prison, crushed it. Done. Morton ended up in exile back in England. Um, and, um, they, from then on, the Puritans pretty much controlled New England and laid the basis for America as a cultural institution. Cause I mean, right there you have a story because it's so early on, like early 1600s, you have a story where basically it could go either way. Like talk about, you know, when people have fun with the what ifs, mm -hmm. talk about a what if, you know, if, uh, I guess my frustration in <clears throat> reading that passage was, why didn't fucking Morton and these guys expecting what you may expect from the Puritans, which is they will come to kick your ass, get better at the use of a gun. Yeah. Have an idea of how to... Well, you know, not everyone's like you and me, Daniele. You know, like not, not everyone's a fighter. Mm -hmm. These guys, I guess, were lovers, not fighters. I don't know. <laughs> They're definitely drinkers. How, yeah. how do stories like this hide in history? Because I obviously never heard that before. Yeah, it's there. School. I mean, I'm not the only one to write about it, but I'm the only one to place it in the center of the narrative, I'll tell you that much, and to build an argument around it. Uh, it is ignored in most... I had not heard of it until... You know, and I have a PhD in history from Columbia. <laughs> I hadn't heard about it until I started writing this book. Um, which I mean, was... I had, oh, been, I had been a professor for many years when I started writing the book. So, um, well, okay. So here's, here's the answer to that. Why, why are moments like this of libertinism hidden? Uh, so the old history, right? Celebrated generals, scientists, inventors, presidents, senators, blah, blah, blah. Uh, guys who embodied the Puritan ethic, of self-discipline, right? So that explains quickly why moments like Marymount weren't in that narrative. <clears throat> the, the harder, the thing that people have a harder time understanding is why the new left historians, people who came out of the 1960s when we were all doing drugs and dancing naked in Golden Gate Park, why, why wouldn't they talk about that? Well, actually, they, the people who took over the academy, who came out of the new left, were not, they see there were two 1960s. People don't realize this. My parents, I come from that, I was born to that generation. My parents were radicals in Berkeley in the 1960s and 70s, so I know all about it. There were two new lefts. One was the countercultural new left, which I would love to reinvent now. 
and just make it better. <laughs> but I want a new counterculture like that one. Um, maybe with a little bit more intelligence, but with the same sort of spirit mm-hmm. of freedom, you know? So there was that one. Those are, those are the hippies in San Francisco in Golden Gate Park, hate Ashbury, right? People smoking weed, free sex, free love, all that stuff, you know? And then across the Bay, there were new lefties like my parents who were socialists, you know, who were serious about politics, right? They actually hated the hippies because they thought they were unserious. Of course. And what they stood for was inconsequential because all that really matters to them is to the new lefty politicos is economics, political institutions. And those things certainly are absolutely important. Sure. But everything got subsumed under that project of remaking the economy and the political institutions, right? Mm-hmm. And then more deeply, um, socialism itself is tremendously, profoundly um, disciplinary. Because think about it, you know, what is socialism? It means you're not only a worker, you're also a manager, right? Everyone owns everything and everyone manages everything. So I, so I started thinking about this, you know. I was a socialist for a long time because my parents were. Uh, but like in my late 30s, I started to think, well, what the fuck, man? So let, let's, let's break this down. Okay, so I got to work on the factory floor for eight hours on my shift, my regular shift, you know, that I worked under capitalism. Oh, but then under socialism, when I, my shift is over, I've got to go to a meeting to manage the factory. Hold on, I'm not done then yet, right? So we managed the factory for a few hours or maybe eight hours, you know. Oh, but wait, socialism is also about managing the whole society. So then I have to go to a meeting to manage my town, or city, but it's not, it's not also a local project. It's a global project. Socialism is global management by the working class. So then I got to go to a fucking meeting to manage the United States. And then, oh, oh then there's the earth, right? right. So I got to be, I have to do something about that too. So my thing, you know, a lot of conservatives like, and libertarians don't like socialism because it's inefficient and all these you know, arguments. It's like fine, but no, for me, it's like a bunch of fucking work, <laughs> right? Talk about puritanical. Right. So that's actually, and they sort of, socialists sort of understood that, not terribly consciously, but they understood it. They sort of internalized that idea. So they really like rigid, not fun people. Um, and I found that out, you know, or I, I started, that's why I became very uncomfortable in the left. Um, I wanted, I wanted to be in the left because of my parents. Right. So I was like training myself to be a good right. socialist. Um, but then I started hanging out with those people. <laughs> and that I think is the problem to a lot of, cause I mean, you're like the fact that liberals piss you off so much. I think yeah. a lot of it is because you're around them all day long. Right. You know, that's my world. And yeah. if you're around, uh, you know, Christian fundamentalist all day long, you yeah. will see a liberal across the street and if, you'll be if like, if I lived in Kansas, for yeah. instance, <laughs> 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 it'd be a different story. Although I just, you know, but again, it's sort of like, well, you're, okay. So you don't believe in evolution. Okay, fine. I don't care. No, but just don't make me yeah, believe your shit. You part know? of it is how much time, because it's always that, like I always have that reaction, right? As long as I'm, around a group of people i cannot stand a freaking group of people and somebody else looks you know what i can put up with you until i actually hang out with them and that is like okay give me back those guys oh no those guys yeah, suck. Yeah, yeah. it's like you know yeah, it's yeah. a lot of it is yeah i notice it on myself i notice it on a lot of people that the environment we are around in many ways pushes <sighs> us in a way that make us push back i would and that's how yeah i mean in kansas i would be lonely in a different way right you know it's like I just wouldn't talk to them. Right. It's like, we understand each other. You're, you're, you're X and I'm Y. Well, right. and that's not going to change. Yeah. Right. 
It's these fucking liberals. And they, so they understand each other. But the liberals, as I said, they don't understand who they are themselves. They think they're all for freedom and liberation and for being, you know, changing the world. But they're like upholding the, the core values of this society. So you feel like Damn. when you say liberal, you're thinking kind of like sort of these semi-socialists yeah. leftist well, approach. Well, everyone from sort of like the serious the liber- leftist. From the, liber- right. from the liberal wing of the Democratic <clears throat> Party to socialists. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, which is a broad range. But I mean, they all share that in common. Right. They're all basically Puritans, and, and, and which would be fine if they knew it. See, then it'd be, I'd be fine. Right. I'm cool with that. Actually, I have a colleague. God damn, I got to tell you this story. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, <clears throat> this is how Thad gets fired from his I current know. job. Please Shit. do that. Maybe I shouldn't say this. Um, <laughs> too late. No names. <sighs> okay. Um, well, I, so sexual assault is this big issue right now on Occidental's campus. <clears throat> um, and this, is, and this story is not really about that exactly. But anyway, she sort of asked me like what was going on because I'm following it closely. And we were talking about it and... Um, she said, so do you, think, do you think rape is really happening more on the campus? And I said, well, I don't know. The numbers are really, you can't really tell anything from the numbers. It's just very unclear. I don't really think it's happening more than it did before. But, and she said, yeah, I don't know. I mean, and I said, well, I said, you know, there's a lot of drinking going on. She said, yeah, there's a lot of drinking. There's always been a lot of drinking. But basically, you know, why did, why did all the girls dress like prostitutes? Wow. This was a Marxist feminist professor. Wow. Yeah. I and I, you know, it was one of those moments where I was like, I can't even, what, a, what? Yeah. I, I was like, I just looked at her. I was just, I was like, huh? What, what do I do now with you? Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's sort of typical. I mean, but, but actually that was cool. And then she said, um, it was cool that she knew who she was. And then she said, yeah, she saw my look of whatever it was. Right. <laughs> Disgust or, right. or whatever. And she said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not pro-sex. Wow. And I said, Okay. Like, what do you mean exactly? She yeah. Said, she said, well, I mean, I think we should go back to like the 1950s. Jesus Christ. I mean, we should have, she said, women, women on campus should wear skirts down to their ankles. And I was like, I said, the 1950s? Really? You mean like when they were putting people like you in prison? <laughs> right. And throwing them off their jobs uh, from colleges? Yeah. Really? <laughs> and when women were locked to the home? Right. She said, well, it's just that I don't want them thinking about sex. They're here to study. Oh my fucking There's God. the Puritan work ethic too, right? She's got it all in a beautiful package. This is a hardcore Marxist, by the way. So do you hardcore like- Marxist? Um, and, uh, and then on top of that, then she said, I said, wow, really? She said, well, okay, maybe not the 1950s, maybe 1961, you know, like mad men. Whoa. <laughs> right. When the best you could be as a woman outside the home was a secretary who got hit on all day long, right? <clears throat> My goodness. And then she says, to top it off, and this actually proves her Marxist credentials, right? She says, yeah, I'm for censorship. Jesus. And I, I said, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, she said, yeah, like, yeah, it should be like on TV and movies and ads. It's just, I want more censorship. I said, I said, like the FCC, but stricter. She said, yeah, exactly. Jesus. So, but she actually understood, she understands who she is better. Uh, I think she understands the socialist project better than most. Right. right. So actually it was in some ways less irritated. It's, it's the people who, um, because you feel that she's consistent at least. And yeah. She's so, upfront about well, it's it. okay. So here's, here's what really makes me, well, okay. So the Obama thing, of course, as you know, like made me has continues to make me crazy. <laughs> 
since the first time I heard about this guy, I was like, bad news, bad news, danger, danger, Will Robinson. Um, so it's things like, I live in Santa Monica, right? Liberal land. Um, and uh, it's things like cars with two bumper stickers on them. One, Obama, Biden, 2012. And the other sticker, make peace. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, it's like, I'm going to start physically confronting these people, right? Because so that's just like some cognitive shit that's going on. I mean, I don't know what, how they can possibly... And now we're talking about, and we're talking about 2012 after he's right. killed hundreds and hundreds of children, right? So there's that. And then there's like on a, on a more subtle level, there's like, you know, these good kind of, they think they're countercultural. They're like, oh, the nuclear family sucks, man. Or it's like, you know, traditional marriage is bad. And then they'd like support gay marriage, right? And this is gay thing as this great thing. You know, marriage is fundamentally conservative. Gay marriage is a fundamentally conservative movement mm -hmm. for God's sake, right? That's why conservatives now are embracing it because they're figuring this out finally. They're like, oh, this is our thing. We need to take control of this one. This is our joint, right? Um, <clears throat> you know, and then, and then like loving the fact that Obama's such a good family man. It's like, I don't hate him for being a good family man, but I'm sure shit is not going to, I'm not going to support him for that. Right. I'm not going to love him for that. Anyway. Do you think when it comes to politics though, isn't it uh, kind of the nature of the business that, um, at, in all times and places, everyone involved is an ass to one degree or another, not because, I mean, it's just the game itself. Cause like when I yeah. think about it, I cannot think ever of a single guy that I was like, you know, that guy I would have supported wholeheartedly because he has my vision of the world. Yeah. Well, here's why. Right. What is the state? The state is first and foremost. And in fact, Obama said this himself as a beautiful mm -hmm. moment before he was running for president. He said this in some interview. He said, the state is the monopoly is a monopoly on violence. Right. That's what it is. Right. And then it exerts violence on people to control them. That's it has to be that. Sure. It doesn't mean it's, I mean, some people say it's evil for, I mean, right. And you can, I'm not going to argue with you, you're sure, sure, it's evil, sure. but it, it, it's, it's necessarily that, right. right. It's a system of violence. It is right. If you don't pay your taxes, what happens to of you? Of course. Go to jail. How do, why do you go to jail? Because some dudes with guns will show up at your door and yep. take you there forcibly, right? Um, <clears throat> uh, so to want to be a manager of that system requires a bit of sadism, in my view. I guess just to play devil's advocate on the bumper sticker thing, what I'm yeah. thinking could be going on, because I don't know, of course, but what I'm thinking could be going on in somebody's head is that they have their... I don't know if it's that clear in their mind, but let's assume in the best possible scenario, they have their personal side of what they are about and maybe they really believe all the stuff about peace and blah, 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 right? And then they have the other side, which is the, okay, you have to deal with actual politics and these are the choices you got. Deal with the shits. One is, uh, I think we used it before in an episode, is like, one drives the train toward destruction at 60 miles an hour. The other one drives the train toward destruction at 90 miles an hour. Yay, 60 miles an hour. You know, it's not that there's a fundamental difference in terms of like such a different vision of the world. You're still talking about yeah, nasty well, crap. So here's what I do. I don't take the train. <laughs> I mean, if the train's headed for a brick wall, I'm not going to get on the train. Right. You know? In this case, don't. But bumper sticker. Then. Now I understand. Yeah. I understand. So let's say, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I get, I get the lesser evil mm -hmm. argument. I, I disagree with it, but I respect it. Mm -hmm. Okay. W the problem, I mean, that's sort of just a question of strategy, right? right. Um, that's, that's fine. I mean, I, I respect that. Um, that's not what's been going on with Obama, right? I mean, some people of course have voted sure. for him, as the, but you know, especially in 08, no way. I mean, the whole thing with Obama was 
He was great. Sure, sure. He was fundamentally sure. different and better than all other American politicians. He was not just a lesser evil. He was a very good thing. Right. right? I, I had anarchist friends say that he was going to be, quote, a great president. Right. Anarchists. Um, this is when he was like publicly, I was like, read the fucking Democratic National Platform. It calls mm -hmm. for an increase in the military budget. It calls for more army troops and calls for more Marines and an escalation of the war in Afghanistan. Tell me how in the fuck that is fundamentally better than George Bush, right? And that was just the tip of the iceberg. But anyway, <laughs> so um, it was this. So here's the problem. It is, and this is what went on then. It was a merger of people's identities with a potential head of state, right? That's the problem. All I ask is that people not do that. So mm -hmm. you can judge him for what you get on a practical level, sure. right? He will maybe, there will be maybe fewer dead children sure. in Yemen. <laughs> um, fine. I mean, I, that's fine, right? right? Um, I, don't just, I don't agree with it, but it's fine. It's the thing, it's like identifying with the guy. So you don't have so much, which, for, right. Which yeah. allows, what's good, what does that do? He knows that you're down with him, your family. So that means you're going to forgive him, right? That means he's, has much, he has much more freedom to kill those children because he knows he'll get away with it. Guess what happened, right? There was a significant anti-war movement during Bush. There's been none since Bush. You have less of a problem with the lesser of two evil argument, kind of like politics, that's just the game. It sucks no matter what, you know, just pick your poison kind of thing. You have a problem when people are rather than just picking their poison, they are picking a poison and claiming that it's medicine, that it's, uh, this is really good stuff as opposed yeah. to just saying, uh, you know, yeah. I got to do this because what yeah. else is the choice? If, if everyone who voted for Obama voted for him as the lesser evil, I wouldn't be nearly as bothered. Right. That's a strategic question. Right. Right. It's the merger of the right. It's the thinking that he's a good guy. He's right. Right. All right. Listen, I want to talk about two things. Do tell. I want to talk about whores and I want to talk about martial arts. Always in favor of both. Okay. I'm definitely not opposed and we're going to go there very soon. Well, at least speaking wise, if not in practice, but the, um, <laughs> where <laughs> I'm talking to the right guy. Yeah. <laughs> the one last thing I wanted to ask you about Thomas Morton too is because I mean that really fascinated me as a what if the really would the problem have been if Morton and these guys rather than just being purely being happy hippies dancing under the flagpole kind of thing they were if they had been 20% uh, organized where you know they could still do their 80 percent enjoy life have fun and the whole thing but have at least a chance that if somebody come to shoot you and put you in jail you know what to do to make sure to defend your right to do all that stuff yeah i got two words Would. for that <clears throat> hell yes <laughs> so uh i'm as anti-war and anti-imperialist as anyone but i am not a pacifist mm -hmm. um first of all as you know i love punching and kicking of course um but uh, a lot of my book is about violent self-defense um, and its effect, great effectiveness and it's underappreciated um, in American history in particular. Yeah, hell yeah. If they had had guns and knew how to use them and did use them, 
or even spears or whatever, right? Um, it might have been a different story. Because that would have changed the entire... I mean, imagine if the other way around, you know, well, the Puritans show up, they get their ass kicked, okay. these other colonies start thriving. That may have been... It depends on how it would have gone down. So there's two ways you could have done that, right? You could, it could have been just self-defense. It could have mm-hmm. been spontaneous self-defense. That's, right. the, that's the good stuff, right? in my view. That's yep. where you get the really good stuff and no lingering bad effects of mm-hmm. it. If they had chosen to organize themselves into sort of a nation state right and have a standing army right and militarize their society uh then you got bad news coming then they become just like the puritans right because right. that that requires again the self-discipline that puritans loved right that's why the puritans loved having an army so um but yeah man violent self-defense um really underappreciated yeah. We're speaking of violence, you are bring it up. All for it. Sex and martial arts, do tell. Yeah, okay. Well, no, well, those are two set. Well, not entirely separate. Um, no, just, um, you know, peop- the, probably the most popular chapter in the book is mm-hmm. the one on prostitutes in the 19th century. So um, for those of your listeners who haven't read it, which is probably all of them, uh, here's, here it is. Uh, so if you... Uh, were a woman in the 19th century who walked in public without a male chaperone, who wore makeup, who colored your hair, who used a gun, who used violence against men to protect yourself, who owned property, who earned wages comparable to men's wages or higher than men's wages. You were definitely, absolutely a whore. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that prostitutes in the 19th century were the first women in this country to accomplish those freedoms. First ones, before feminists were even talking about them, right? They actually lived those freedoms. They seized them by their behavior, not through ideology, Mm -hmm. not through marching in the streets, not through voting. They just did it. They were aided by tremendous um, economic situation for them, right? It was about supply and demand. There was tremendous demand for their services and a very limited supply. Why? Because of the goddamn Puritans in our culture, right? So most women thought it was a terrible thing, of course, to be a, to be a whore. The few women who didn't care about that stuff or chose to violate that norm, they reaped a bonanza, right? Because there was very little supply and tremendous demand. So they could charge almost whatever they wanted to, especially in Western towns. Right. Right, so this was the era of the boom towns in the West, right, where you would find silver in some little corner of the Rocky Mountains, and the next thing you knew, there was like a 3,000-person town built around. Well, so those towns, you know, the, the people who came there to work in those mines were all men. Right. Usually young. Young, yeah, Usually unmarried. Right. Yep. Right? Rootless. Uh, and they worked horrible, horrible jobs. So when they were off the job, they wanted a good time, Right. So the statistics are just amazing in those towns. I mean, I found many examples of things like, you know, 3,000 men and five women. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the women were all prostitutes, right? Of course. So imagine what you could charge in that situation, right? And they yeah. charged a lot. So that's why prostitutes were by far the highest paid women in the 19th century. Not just the highest paid women. They were among the highest paid workers. Among, I mean, the, tip, the studies were done. The, the Department of Labor got really concerned about this in the 1910s, right? So they did a study of it. They were trying to figure out why this is happening. It's terrible. These prostitutes are getting so well paid, right? And uh, they found that the typical streetwalker, not a madam, not a brothel owner, just a typical prostitute on the street was making double what 
the typical white male construction worker was making. Right. Brothel owners, the madams in the 19th century, um, they owned huge tracts of land, really fancy buildings. They were so powerful. They influenced elections. They got mayors uh, elected. Woman in, uh, named Jessie Heyman in San Francisco. She was the biggest uh, madam in San Francisco in the 19th century. She was so wealthy that after the 1906 earthquake, there were, of course, were thousands and thousands of people left homeless by the earthquake, right? She housed, clothed, and fed 10,000 people in San Francisco. Whoa. She was so wealthy, right? Communist. Yeah, right. Uh, well, no, not at all. I mean, this was just charity. But um, so, yeah, there was a madam in Seattle who owned a bunch of the Pacific Northwest real estate. Uh, there were madams here in L.A. Um, who owned much of what is now Union Station. Um, that was the, that was the tenderloin. That was the red light district where one of the, it's really tragic. No, no, no. They, what Mm. it's really tragic that to give you some address to build union station, they raised that whole red light district. So there's none of it, almost none of it left. Um, but it was incredibly integrated also. So women who had sex with men of a a different race were all whores. Basically, um, brothels were incredibly integrated much. They were the most integrated public spaces in the United States. Why? Well, I mean, to be a whore means you're amoral, right? So one of the, one of the you know moral planks of 19th century United States was racial separation. Where they're like, fuck that. These are customers, right? I don't care. <laughs> so that you have a lot of testimony. Not to say that there were no racist madams, but of course. overwhelmingly, you know, there was far more integrated uh, world than the rest of the United States at large. Um. So, you know, they, these were tremendously powerful, liberated women. Um, oral sex, right? Oral sex was considered as bad as anything in the 19th century. People don't realize that now, but oral sex was just a disgusting, vile thing. Um, so on that note, if you enjoy oral sex, thank a hooker. Not exactly. because she may be the one who just provided well, that a, service for you. No, but well, yeah, because I mean, in the past, the, at least, there's a whole, that possible a whole group of things, a whole bunch of things you should thank hookers for, right? If you no. if you wear makeup, only whores wore makeup in the 19th century. Right, I mean, that was it was actually an industry built around prostitution mm-hmm. because of prostitutes. If you color your hair, oh my god, like coloring your hair red, that was like the badge of prostitutes, right? Right. Uh, r- the red dress that was called the scarlet shame of the streetwalker. Who wears the red dress now? First ladies, right, right. They have hookers to thank for that, right? <laughs> Walking alone in public without a man as a chaperone, that was not okay. Right. That, I mean, how basic is that, right? I know. You have hookers to thank for that, ladies. Yeah. Um, so what happened? What happened? This was when prostitution was illegal across the country, but it was not enforced. Right. Very seldom enforced. Yep. So there were brothels that, you know, even though they were illegal, the cops turned a blind eye to them for various reasons. Um, so they had this safe space, right, in which to work, right? These were four walls, building, right, in a city. The madams typically hired security guards, often police officers, right? And the madams all owned guns and knew how to use them. There's great stories about madams and prostitutes generally shooting potential clients, right, or clients who did something bad to them. Um, <clears throat> the wages were very high, as we talked about. Um, and it was, and they got free healthcare often, free food often, free housing often, free clothes often, right? These were really good jobs. Right. Especially for women. Um, 
for most of the 19th century, that was the case in, across the country. Okay, so what happens? In the late 19th century, these people called feminists come along <laughs> who want to gain citizenship, right? They want to gain the vote. They want to gain full citizenship. Well, to do that in this country has always meant proving that you are as puritanical and repressed as the men are. That's what it's always meant, assimilation into that culture, right? And we can talk about that. That's for every immigrant group has gone through this. Sure. For African-Americans, it's an ongoing project. And for women, it was a project too. So the feminists said, we cannot, we cannot have these women representing us, right? We've got to show that we are opposed to this thing, right? These women who are licentious, who make money off of selling sex, who profit from sex, right? PhD from Colombia. That's what you got. You use licentious. Awesome. So feminists joined with a lot of old school male civic leaders to mount what was called the social purity movement. <laughs> Says it all. The name alone sounds scary. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, so what they, what they set out to do was first and foremost, shut down all the brothels. So beginning in the 1880s through the 1910s, they lobbied aggressively all the city governments to shut down the brothels, and that's exactly what they accomplished. So by the early 20th century, pretty much every brothel in the country had been closed by the cops. And what happened? The prostitutes working in there either quit the business and went to sweeping floors or being wives, or they went onto the street, right? And they no longer had a madam and her security guards to protect them. So who did they turn to? People we now call pimps, right? So that's why, that is why, Uh, prostitutes now work under overpasses and they work for pimps who are brutal fuckers, right? Who exploit them and beat them and steal from them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's why they are prey to every asshole John in the world and that they are prey to the cops harassing them and the rest of it, the rest of it. Um, so yeah, so thank, thank the early feminists and progressives. This was a progressive movement, by the way, very much a progressive movement. Feminists were all progressives pretty much. Uh, thank them. Unlikely, right? You wouldn't expect that. Thank them for putting those women under those overpasses. Um, <clears throat> By the way, on the yeah. uh, on the consequences of making prostitution illegal, uh, there were one of the funniest things I've read in terms of historical data. I had read somebody was noticing a curious spike in domestic disputes in which the cops were called in between husbands and wives and the time when the crackdown on prostitution took place. Hmm. And one of the explanations they were giving was that because uh, late 19th century there was so much heavy repression on female sexuality, where, you know, growing up a girl would be scared into... Uh, diseases and unwanted pregnancy and the sex is bad, bad, bad and if you enjoy it, you're a whore so just close your eyes and it will be over soon and you'll have cute kids, you know, and that's what it's all about, right? Yeah. So most women were rightfully freaked out by that kind of education and their attitude about sex was very frigid lo logically. Mm -hmm. So what men would do is they would have sex with their wives for having kids and then for good sex they would go to hookers. Right. When the crackdown on the red light district took place, more men were like, oh, I don't want to break the law. I don't want to get caught. So started pressuring their wives for sex more often, more regularly. And they're like, the fuck do you want from me? We already have four kids. We're done. You know, it's <laughs> over. And so, so I thought that was one of the funniest consequences yeah. of the. Yeah. I mean, it's so they were they were the martyrs for women's freedom. Yeah. Those those early prostitutes. Um, 
On top of that, uh, on top of cracking down the brothels and putting them into the streets, um, they what began in the 1920s was a um, program of sterilization so that women who were convicted of prostitution or even often just being promiscuous mm-hmm. were forcibly sterilized by courts. Yeah. Yep. So tens of thousands of American women between 1910, 1940 were forcibly sterilized for their sexual freedom. What was the procedure in 1915 to sterilize you? I don't know. Probably just tying tubes. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but, um, some surgical mean. Yeah. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, you know, they're clearly martyrs. And I mean, I think it's one of the great tragedies, what happened to them. Um, but what happened was right around the same time as these women are being forcibly sterilized and being thrown into the streets, most other American women are looking at them and their culture and saying, hey, that looks pretty good, right? So you have, in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, you have all these magazines and newspapers complaining about how respectable women are now dressing like whores, right? So some skin was shown, finally, among you know proper ladies. Women were going out into the streets by themselves. They were smoking and drinking in public. They were dancing in public, things that only whores did. They were wearing makeup, God forbid. Um, so flappers are the most famous example mm-hmm. of that, but it actually that st- that all the flapper style comes directly from the brothels. Right, There's, that's well known. But it was actually quite common. That style became so common that in the nineteen uh, late twenties and thirties, the first ladies um, Hoover and Roosevelt both wore flapper haircuts in their official portraits, which now hang in the White House. Mm-hmm. So you've got hooker culture hanging in the White House, and no one knows it. So my ideas. Got me fired. The, the ideas that are in this book, um, especially about civil rights, but the whole thing. What happened was I was, um, I had been running the American Studies program at Barnard College, which is the women's college affiliated with Columbia mm-hmm. for five years. And, uh, but only as a contingent faculty. I, I didn't have to, it was on, right. not a tenure track position, so nothing permanent. Uh, but a tenure track position came open in exactly what I was teaching. So in other words, they had a line for that, right? And a lot of people were like, oh, my God, you're going to get this. This is just pro forma going through the process. Don't worry about it. Because, like, the number of American Studies majors had tripled at Barnard when I was there and whatever. I was getting lots of students. Um, and I was like, eh, okay. But the thing was, the faculty didn't know what I was saying in my classes. <laughs> See, I had been developing the ideas that became this book in my lecture courses, right? And they didn't, no one ever can. It's a funny thing in our business, right? No one ever... Because comes and watches. No one, there's no, no of sort of, which is great. You know, yeah, thank I God. Know, but like, no one, no one knows what I say in class no. unless a student reports it to them. That's exactly. Unless students complain, yeah. What you do in the classroom, yeah. they don't right. care because ultimately right. they don't care. You know, as long as they have enrollments, as long as they have the right. numbers to show that people oh, yeah. are showing up, yeah. Which I'll, is good. I like that. You know, but. But until, until you have to then oh. give it what's called a job talk, you give a lecture right. to the faculty for a job, you yeah. know, for a permanent job. So I had to do that, right? So I got up and gave a lecture, my stuff on civil rights and race and sex. And you couldn't and, just lie? No. Well, I could have, but I mean, I'm not even sure what I would have said because I had nothing to say. Tell know, the other standard than, story. Other than what I really believed, yeah. So, oh my um, God, you're so nice and naive. <laughs> uh, oh, I was really naive, yeah. Really? Because, so, I mean... 
knowing the way academia is, knowing what you write, I would have just gone in and gone about <laughs> Martin Luther King, George the Washington, hero of the, yeah, great totally, guy. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, no, I was talking about drag queens and gay preachers good and, idea. and how puritanical Martin Luther King was. This was, as this was my talk. Actually. That was yeah. a good idea. Um, and talked about, uh, black violent self-defense, right. the, how it actually desegregated the South and not Martin Luther King's. I mean, it was, yeah, the whole hog. It was great. So I had half the faculty come up to me afterwards and say, that was the best job talk I've ever heard. And the other half either walked out of my talk or wrote emails to the search committee afterward saying, quote, he is, his work is improper and dangerous yeah. and, in, and inappropriate for an academic setting. That's right. a win. Yeah. So it was, so there was a split, I will say they were split. They were definitely split. I had, you know, supporters. Um, but the guys who thought I had to go were very important faculty at Columbia because Columbia controls Barnard basically. Right. Controls their hiring, basically. Um, and so the search committee said, no, bye. Um, now, you know, of course I was crushed at the time, but what happened was um, I then was like, oh, shit, what am I going to do now? I remember walking around Central Park with my son, who was like three at the time, thinking, what the fuck am I going to do now? And I was like, oh, wait, I have all these lectures I've been writing and giving, and the students really liked it. You know, I was like, hmm, maybe they could become a book. And I started talking to people in publishing and they were like really interested in it, publishing. Um, and um, got a bunch of, lot of interest from publishers and got a really good offer enough so that I could leave academia for a while and live off the proceeds of the advance for the book. Moved to California and I just said, fuck all of you. <laughs> I have so much of the same story early on, the fuck all of you part. Somehow, none of the lots right. of money coming in for a book part. That one I right. still need to work on. So this on. is the good, this is the segue. So this is martial arts, man. I want to talk about this right now. <laughs> Let's get to this right now. Okay, so Daniele has been fucked over by these people. Most popular professor in all of Santa Monica College, they wouldn't give him a real job, right? God forbid you should have someone teaching who the students actually like, Right. What's way more important is the credentials someone has. Of course. Yeah, the fact that they went to an Ivy League college or Ivy League university for their PhD is way more important than what the students actually think of it. My God. In what other industry do people not care about what the consumers want? I know. What, what other industry is that? It's insane. Right? So that might help explain why teaching in colleges is so pathetically bad, mm -hmm. right? Because they don't hire people like you. Or they don't care about hiring people like you. It's, no. and, it's, and it's not important. It's, what, it's how many books you have, it's, and it's the name of the institution after your PhD. Because no. what students like or not like right. means less than nothing. Right. And, and I was fired, obviously, for my ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and I had friends, colleagues tell me that afterward. Right. In, in private, they told me that, of course. There's no question. Um, I had a book already, by the way, <laughs> published before this even happened. So this is my... And which was, I was way ahead of the game in that right. way. But anyway, right around that time I, I took up boxing and, um, and I found that I was really good at it. Like, I think, I really think I'm naturally, reach. huh? You've got pretty good reach. Yeah. yeah no, I'm, I've totally got an awesome wingspan. So no, right. Actually that is what I was going to get to. So I am, this is totally, and I hope you're not offended, man. Cause I'm going to give you some props in a second, but like <laughs> among, among, among all professional historians, I am absolutely sure 
I have the best jab and right hook. <laughs> That's I am cool. absolutely sure of that. So then, then I started taking, now I'm training Muay Thai, like right. hardcore. Like I'm doing it like five times a week, you know? Jesus. So man, ugh, my roundhouse will like, like break a historian in half. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was sitting over there. Like, yeah. I think, by the way, head kick, like, like I, head kicks. Devastating. That's my sidekick would kill a horse. <laughs> I and I am not averse to using elbows. I will cut a motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Stitch him up. Uh, so you know, I've been doing this for like what four years now. Yeah, I've been training for four years, and I'm like good at it. You know, it's like I really am. I'm naturally talented, and it's just, well, it's because I also like have all this anger. You know, so right. you know that. Good fighters, I mean, professional fighters, they have to have that combination. You have to be like a particular personality. Mm -hmm. but, and then it's, the physical talent's part of it, but like you gotta like really want to hit stuff and people. Um, <clears throat> so I got the stand up game. I, I'm on. And your stand up game is good, very good. But like my stand up game is on point, and your ground game is the shit. Okay. So he and Daniel and I have been talking about this for a while, uh, at least a year now. We've got plans. We are going to set out on a ninja revenge quest. <laughs> We're going to jump these motherfuckers in their offices, right? After their classes or just, you know, on their way to the car in the parking lot, the faculty parking lot. We will fuck them <laughs> up, man. I'm like, I don't even know. Like, should we start with a stand-up? Then I will knock them to the ground. Then you will take them and fucking choke them out right there in the asphalt in their parking lot. But like, we got, I got what? I got like a good... 10 to 12 people on my sure. list. I'm sure you've got at least of that. Of course. Yeah. So, you know, that's yeah. how we roll right here. The two of us. That's why we're good friends. Um, that, by the way, my roundhouse will, uh, I forgot what you say, break a historian enough. That's going to be the title of the podcast. No <laughs> doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I just hope no, none of them hear this. Um, <laughs> I don't think they're prone to listening to podcasts like this. Probably at least not. I hope not. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, so... I'm not a respectable kind of guy, you know? And so academics, a lot of people don't understand. They think, oh, they're, you know, professors are so groovy and, you know, no, hell no. They're completely uptight. That's why I can't stand the mm -hmm. culture. Totally uptight. They would never even joke about this kind of stuff. Of course. Right. So, but you and I, man, we're a different breed and that's why they, that's why they have such a hard time with us. Um, but yeah, so we're going to kick some ass and then we're going to make a TV show out of it, right? We, didn't we agree on that? I'm totally for it. Yeah, we know. We talked about this. We have plans. We're going to make a fucking TV show. Um, well, didn't you, weren't you going to do like some video where you're going to kick some professor's ass in like a I classroom? Just did. I just oh, you did? Oh, yeah. awesome. See? That's it, part of when, two weeks yeah. ago when you guys heard me and I was insanely sick, it may have something to do with the fact that the days right before I was in Canada shooting this thing, which is basically going to be a pitch for a TV show and... Uh, Part of it was, yeah, choking this guy out. It was like 12 hours of shooting for a couple of days. And then uh, they had the bright idea of putting me in a t-shirt outside in 40 degree weather in Vancouver for, you know, it's like, come on, you're a tough guy. You can wait a little longer. And it's like, of course, the next day I passed out. It's like awful, right? But yeah, the, the choking the guy out seat was awesome because they wrote this speech that is perfect. It's exactly the way you picture the boring lectures to be. It's like... The bicameralism of American culture goes back to, it's like you die just listening to it, right? And so yeah. I come from behind, I just shush the students who see me show up behind this dude and just choke the hell out of him, put him down. And basically, it's the, the standard line is um, 
I really hate hurting people, but I hate boring history even more. Mm. You know, and I start, mm-hmm. and then we start with the whole thing. It was hilarious though because they were saying I was being too nice to this guy because this guy, well, he's a nice guy, and he was. So in order to get me a little more fired up, at one point this crazy motherfucker started digging his nails in my forearm, actually drawing blood where we were doing this. And so, of course, my reaction is I just choked the hell out of him where he pretty much passed out. So this, and, uh, this clearly was not a real professor, right? Yeah, no, no. Because no. they would never no, do that. Of course, yeah. no. But, but he, he played a part well. He was really good at doing the... And, uh, it was hilarious. But yeah, this dude, yeah, it was like an intense day of shooting. First, the dude draws blood and I have to choke him out. Mm-hmm. Then at one point, I, uh, I'm taking down parts of the set, helping out, and I didn't see that they put this giant barbell to hold one of the um, cloth behind it. I pull it down and I pull this giant barbell on me so I have to block it with my forearm. <laughs> this humong. See? It's like I got bit. You're a so badass, much, man. But... We just, I mean, like, there are no badasses in my, our business. I mean, and this is what we, I realized lately. Like, this is what we have to do. Because, so, you know, I got fired. I was like, okay, I'm going to write this book. <laughs> That'll change their minds. Right. <laughs> <laughs> then they'll say, oh, my God, he was right the whole time. I'm so sorry. Here's an endowed chair at Harvard for you. Right. You poor martyr. We all apologize. As, as, as an entire profession, we apologize to Thaddeus Russell and we'll award him a lifetime chair, endowed chair at Harvard, right? No, fuck that shit. So, no, they have ignored it. You know, book's yeah, been course. out for uh, two and a half years now. Oh, by the way, you are, you were the first academic who I, I knew of who read it. And talk and liked it. Really? Yeah. But, so they've just ignored it. There's right. been not one single yeah. academic review of the book yet. No. I've actually not used one. it. I still use it in my classes. Right. I think I'm selling the first it regularly. One you, yeah. Your copies. So. Now it's a uh, you know it's required at a Humboldt State, which nice. I think is perfect. Of course. Right. Everybody's. I was like, of course, that's yeah. where they're going to require it. Um, and there's a school I think in Colorado. There's some professor. Anyway, but uh, you know, so I was like, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the high road. I'm gonna. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to win the war of ideas here, you know, write articles. I've been writing lots of articles. And it's like, no, they ignore me. Right. So no, I was like, no, uh, 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 uh. no, 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 no. We have to like, we have to remove these people Mm -hmm. (laughs) or intimidate, you know, like that's what they're forcing us to do. Right. So in our business, um, you're, you're rewarded. You get that share at Harvard. If you do the following, if you, move the party line on a topic just a little. Right. You, they do require that you move it. Sure. You do change the discourse a bit, but not a lot. No. Just a little bit. And you do it well. Mm-hmm. Your craftsmanship is really good. Right? right. You write really well. You're not inflammatory. You're not provo- overly provocative. You just say, mm, just, just nudge it over a bit. Right. If you come in and have like really different ideas about things, they either ignore you or get rid of you. Yep. Um, as we have found out, but, it, and it extends not just, it's not just, uh, our ideas. It's also the way it's our behaviors too. They don't like the way you behave. No, of course not. They don't like the way I'm not as bad as you are, you know, but I'm pretty bad. Like it's just, you're supposed to be like, you know, basically some version of the tweed coat motherfucker right. with the, with the arm, with elbow patches and a pipe, you know, that's by the way, some version of that. When I got scared some, like, was some yuppie version of that. Right. After reading your book, knowing you, 
and then yeah you telling me stuff like that you know i'm not as bad as you are and then i remember like talking with mike v you know tattooed from head to toe ultimate badass was looking at me i was like jesus man really that far and i'm like and so when i started realizing the people looking at me when i think he's like these guys are the ultimate badass and i'm this little kid who's playing along with and then having people look at me that way i'm like oh fuck maybe i am pushing the line just a tad maybe i'm yeah. just going slightly over as run dmc said not bad meaning bad but right. bad meaning good yeah yeah of course yeah um, <clears throat> yeah you i mean so just the fact that you hang out with ufc guys right and then teach history courses like that doesn't happen right and it's not supposed to happen that means you're not that smart really <laughs> but that's the thing that's because those people are not really that smart right, well right. more important more importantly they're not that important you know there it's not important you know the fact that it's the fastest growing sport in america that millions of people consume it mm -hmm. love it structure parts of their lives around it that's not important the what, what people actually want and the way they actually live that's not important what's important is you know the gdp right what's important is this or that Senate subcommittee. And those things are important. But I think the fact that millions of people want something is profoundly important. Yep. It tells us a lot about our culture, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. But it's really important and needs to be studied. That's why popular, I mean, so, but popular culture wasn't studied at all right. in academia until really about 15 years ago. Yep. Isn't that amazing? Yep. I mean, this thing that pretty much all Amer almost all Americans consumed avidly, spent their money voluntarily on, spent much of their time yep. voluntarily on, ignored. Absolutely. Sex, right? So every psychologist will tell you that sex is the most important part of anyone's personality, right? That we think about it all the time, right? Mm -hmm. That the way we think about all kinds of things is structured around sex, right? Um, ignored, yep. totally. I So when I took my comprehensive exams for my PhD, this was in the late... Mid nineties, mid nineties. We're talking about, right? I read probably 500 books, something like that for that, you know, over a series of several months, not one mention Jesus. of sex. Now there are absolutely some academics since then who have very much written about, it, and a lot of them are wonderful and I love them. And I've, you know, a lot of my book is taken right. from their work, um, or based on their work. Um, but, you know, overwhelmingly, there's no talk of it. Right. The, the vast majority of people who claim to be, you know, history, what is history? It's the study of everything happened before now. Everything that happened before, that's all it is. Right. Everything that happened before now, that's history, right? Well, so if the psychologists are saying that sex is like the most important thing in the way we think about the world, <laughs> why are historians generally ignoring the most important thing? What is that? You know why? They do that because they're fucking Puritans. Of course. Because they've internalized it and they don't know it. <clears throat> they don't even know it. That's what drives me crazy. Rick Santorum knows who he is. I respect that guy. <laughs> no, I know. It's like at least you're upfront about where you stand, what your values are and what you're about. And I agree with you. I mean, to me, it's funny. It's like when I teach uh, U.S. history, I notice that the major, I mean, it's like, yeah, and then there's the civil war and there's this battle and there's that thing. And then there's this change about attitudes about sex and then there's popular culture. You know, that's the kind of stuff that I thrive on because don't get me wrong. Of course, the big political historical picture is important. Of course. But in day-to-day -day life, 
what matters the most to human beings is not what president so-and-so is saying or what even even in the middle of wars sometimes that's not the most important thing for people who live it let alone for everyone else sure so that's where that's why i'm fascinated with pop culture that's why i'm fascinated with the stuff that's ultimately what we care about the second that we put down a book or what are your priorities we're talking about what people are choosing to do yeah exactly right this exactly. is they're not forced into it they were forced to fight in the civil war <laughs> they're not forced to turn on the television exactly that's and why to he, watch a particular no. program no. but that's what the americans do a lot yep right so for better or worse right yep. whatever it is you know i happen to think it's generally not a not a bad thing mm-hmm. what they consume but but even if you think it's a bad thing study it it's the important stuff right have something to say yeah, about it absolutely. write your books about that instead of so-and-so general snodgrass who ran right. the 19th regiment of the whatever fucking infantry you know like and even like with students it's like you have people coming in from i don't know i made up snodgrass <laughs> you have people from all walks do little it's always do little actually i take that back it's always admiral do little anyway sorry like I don't know, like especially community colleges, I have people who come from all walks of life, right? You have the guy from, the kid from South Central LA, the one from Beverly Hills, the one who's 18 years old, the one who's 80 return, you know, you have literally everything and it's opposite. If you are talking just about some political event, you know, at most 20% of people that care vaguely about it, you can, by making it interesting, you can get 40% of people to care about it and everybody else is just well, I mean, suffering through it. So right? I'm very political and right. I do wish Americans would pay more attention to certain things in high, what are, what's sure. called high politics, yeah. especially wars, mm-hmm. right? I mean, but all kinds of things. I wish they were. But, um, but the fact that they are choosing pleasure a lot yep. says a lot to me. Exactly. Right? So all we hear from the form, what I call the formal culture, things that politicians say, say that business leaders say, that our teachers in public schools say, that's all Puritan stuff, yeah. right? Uh, the fact that they are tacitly rejecting that all day long, every mm-hmm. day, <laughs> even when they're on the job, right? They're, how many hours do workers spend surfing the web? Right. Corporations can tell you because they're studying it. They're spending tens of millions, of, hundreds of millions of dollars studying this because it's such a huge problem for them. There's this tacit rejection of the work ethic all every minute of every day across this country, right? Mm-hmm. The fact, just the fact that that's happening is really significant to me. Absolutely. Right? Because the way we present ourselves formally as a culture, you would never know it. No. You would never know that at all. Not completely. Porn. Pornography. So porn, last time I checked, the revenue for porn in America was higher than the revenue of all three American car companies. Right. Certainly comparable. It's right up there with Hollywood, mainstream movies, yep. right? Every, I mean, whatever. Everyone knows that the consumption of porn is immense of in this country. Okay. How often is that talked about in sociology classes? Theater. It is, but only as a terrible thing. Yep. 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 <laughs> oh, Jesus. The men of this country, you know, when they talk about, oh, God, men are men are watching porn instead of doing this, and it's teaching them to beat their wives and violate them and da 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 and, my God, this is why we're having anal sex more because of porn, which is just terrible that we're having anal sex more. Um, so again, tacit rejection of the Puritan sex ethic, right? Um, massively, mm-hmm. right? And, and in places like Kansas. <laughs> this, is where, this is where we, we know, statistically we know, the research has been done that porn consumption in the red, what's called the red states is higher than in the blue states, right? Uh, yeah, but it's high everywhere, right? right? 
Um, that seems like it's almost like our social unconscious, right? What would be more revealing of a society than looking at it and opening up its head? To me, that's what porn is, right? right? It's opening up your head and looking directly into your unconscious. Like, we, do we do that as academics? No, a, a tiny bit. Some of, so there right. are some. There are a right. few. Have there's an awesome woman at uh, Burke, Cal Berkeley who does this. Uh, there's a woman at Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara, who does this. But you know, they're the outliers. They're weird. And usually it's done in a really boring way. Like even when you get really excited yeah, about exactly. the topic, it's like, oh, they finally tackle this topic, except that they talk about it the way they talk about everything else, which is dry, boring, and sucking mm-hmm. the life out of it. So, right. so the people who do write about pop culture, um, uh, porn people are a little mm-hmm. better, but like, although there's only like six of them. <laughs> well, right. But, um, you know, people who talk about pop culture are generally quite ideological, actually, mm-hmm. but tend to be left-wing ideologues. Um, and so what they do, and this drives me crazy, and I mentioned it in the book, in the first uh, the introduction, they talk about every, every movie, every high-heeled shoe, every dance as somehow prefiguring a collective future, right? A collective right. politics. It's like, oh, well, they did this all together. Like I've read, I can't tell you how many times I've read like analyses of nightclubs or, or jazz clubs in the 1920s or whatever, or rock clubs in the 1960s. Well, because everyone was together in the same room dancing to the same music, it really, it means that they really want to live as a community. They, they wanted to live as a community and, you know, therefore, therefore liberalism is a good thing because that means, you know, sharing and, you know, well, what, how about, how about this as a, an alternative? Maybe they were there because it was fun, period. Fun is one of those bad words. And is that, yeah, right. so that becomes, so if you do that, it's unimportant, right? Yeah, of course. Fun is unimportant because it's not changing the, you know, it's not changing the structure of the society. Yep. Well, actually it is changing the structure time. of society, right? More than anything. Yep. When nothing, nothing, there is nothing that dictators have hated more than fun. Yep. So if you look at the Soviet Union, I have a chapter on this. Uh, my argument is that the Soviet Union was brought down by Levi's, Levi's jeans. Mm-hmm. Uh, the jazz music came into the Soviet Union right after World War II because the troops came back from the Western right. Front with it, and it took off. It was enormously popular. whole generation of Soviet youth in the 1940s and 50s were into jazz, right? Stalin flipped out about it. He started to try to imprison them. He outlawed jazz. He outlawed, actually, particular notes and styles of playing instruments were outlawed in the Soviet Union. He said it would end Soviet civilization. Yep, and he, he was right. And he was right, <laughs> yep. right? After jazz, rock and roll came in. Even more popular. Of course. Took off. Then disco. Huge, right? And people, and then they wanted Levi's jeans too. When I was in the Soviet Union in 1987, I walked into Red Square, and this was totally common for experience for Americans and Westerners generally, Walked into Red Square. I was immediately surrounded by all these Soviet youth begging me for jeans, my jeans. And I ended up trading a pair of jeans for a full Red Army uniform. Right? They were desperate right. for it. And then I was and then I was in Leningrad, and uh, these kids came up to me, or I was with these other Americans. They came up to us and said, hey, come, we're, gonna, we're having a, a show tonight. I was like, what do you mean a show? So we drive, get driven to this, some like, abandoned apartment building that the state had somehow forgotten about. <clears throat> These kids had like taken it over mm-hmm. and made it into an underground nightclub where a really a rock, a, sort of a rock concert space. And I, we walk in and there's this guy on stage with a full band. He looked just like Elvis Costello and he was singing just like Elvis Costello. 
and they had they they made their own records because it was illegal they had to yep. do it by hand you know pressing the vinyl um and somehow recording it onto the vinyl uh they actually had they had developed techniques to do that because right. it was illegal um and so we watched this concert and about two hours into it there was this huge bang on the door uh sounded like boots and in fact it was <laughs> these cops come in the door who looked like army soldiers in the soviet union the cops looked like soldiers a lot of them um these guys had bayonets <laughs> i was like what the fuck and they took every single soviet kid in there to jail Damn. and left us alone because we had passports from the united states um but that was in 90, 1987 so what would happen right after that right ha <laughs> fuckers right? right all came down why because ronald reagan built a lot of missiles no it's because the soviets didn't want to live that way anymore and they wanted what we had badly so it was a nonviolent revolution what they did was it's the most beautiful thing ever they simply walked away from it they literally walked off their jobs they literally walked into the streets they literally walked to the berlin wall they broke it down then they walked through the hole in that wall and they went shopping in west berlin right that's what they did no they walked away from it and they walked toward the good stuff in our culture not toward the bombs and that kind of thing you know looking at what people want to do for fun, for enjoyment, for that even when, uh, when you're teaching is like one of the ways in which you connect with people. Because when you have like a very diverse audience where ideologically, experience-wise, intellectually, people are on all sorts of different levels, having a particular argument about a historical event, you know, will attract a few people, will turn off a bunch of others. If suddenly you're talking about sex, yeah. everybody can relate. Everybody's yeah. going to be on. So what academics are really, another. really good at, and we're actually trained yeah. to do this, is to suck the life yep. out of any topic. I mean it. Absolutely. You know, so it's actually the more, the more wet it gets, yep. the worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I always try to do that. I try to connect. Now, again, high politics are really important. Sure. Senate subcommittees are important. Wars are important. Generals are important. Presidents are important who the president is, you know, absolutely. But connect it to other things. Yep. Connect it to what matters to people in their daily lives. Then they'll become really interested. Right. Exactly. In that Senate subcommittee. Yep. You know, I mean, really. Um, and you're right. Like things like sex, like sex is everywhere. Yep. And this is one great thing that, um, feminist gender studies scholars did for us they pointed out how sex informs everything mm -hmm. even senate subcommittee decisions even foreign policy right there's all sex is implicated in everything of course yeah. and i mean there are the basic things of life is like there was uh, when i first started teaching there was this kid who was uh, from south central la tough guy really smart but you know south central la he grew up with shitty education with gangs all around dead people at his doorstep on a fairly regular basis all of that kind of stuff and uh, you know he liked some of the stuff i was saying in class but there was still that element of you know it's removed it's like you are right when uh, within weeks of when we started class he started he heard about martial arts he came to train with me there was this revelation like we were when we were done and we we're like you can kick my ass okay, now I really want to listen to you. You know, it's like, it was interesting before, but whatever, words. It's well, like, now you can, you can fight. When I come from, that's the only fucking it, thing that matters. Yeah, so but it's not, just, it's not just being a cool guy who does their stuff. You know, because I, I drop in pop culture references sure. every chance I get, but it's about connecting things like violence. Right. <clears throat> right? 
the violence of martial arts and mm-hmm. what it means broadly in our culture. Is violence important in this culture? My God. Of course. Immensely. Yeah. Right. It's central too. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that the fact that street violence, which is what martial arts comes out of, mm-hmm. is not okay. Right. Right? Not okay. It's banned. Mm-hmm. Right? Not okay. But other forms of mass violence, right? From not just our wars, but to incarceration of millions of people, sure. right? That's fine. What does that mean? Yep. That, so violence is central, yeah. right? Um, so you can connect it. So martial arts is absolutely, absolutely. a great, yep. not just entry into that, but you can connect it. You know, martial arts have been banned essentially mm-hmm. in our, outside of the, the dojo. <laughs> you can't do it. Right. Why is that? Because the state has a monopoly on violence, right? It was deliberate. They understood that. We can't allow people to be violent on their own. Mm-hmm. We must control all the violence. Yeah. No, and, that's, uh, and that's what makes it to me any discussion fun is when you connect it to life, when it's about real life as opposed to being ideology right. or abstract theory yeah. or anything you can suck the life out of it and turn it into this just museum piece, which right. ultimately doesn't matter to anybody. There's no right. relation to your priorities, to your emotions, to what turns you on, right. to anything. So to me, anything is about building that connection back to life. Otherwise, it's irrelevant. You know? Yeah, so that, I mean, that's why that piece that you read in Huffington Post that I wrote was, went, did so well is because it was all... Um, it was, it was, it was, I connected my own life experiences to my work and my ideas, you know, and talked about growing up with radical parents in Berkeley and talked about how I was a terrible student right. all the way through school, got graduated from high school with a C average, you know, um, how I was influenced by hippies and gays and black people and soul music and, you know, and, and how that became these ideas that sort of encompass a lot of stuff. Right. Um, and, and, you know, it's funny my, um, when I was selling the book, trying to sell the book, um, and writing the proposal for it, you know, I wrote sort of, I was still trained as an academic. So I was just like, okay, just what are the arguments? Yep. Which is fine. Good. I'm sure. What are the arguments? Here's the argument in chapter one, chapter two, here's the overall argument for the book. My agent was like, that's great. But what I want is, and I wrote, the, and he said, oh, and you have to write a biography too. So I wrote the biography. It was like, you know, Thaddeus Russell graduated from Antioch College and yeah. he received a PhD from Columbia, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he's like, no, no, no. I want like, I want like a 10 page biography of you. And I was like, what? This is a history book, dude. Right. What are you talking about? We don't do that. We don't talk about ourselves. That's not okay. But I did. I wrote this full sort of memoir, actually, and it was part of the proposal. And it, it was great because it not only did it sell the book, I mean, publishers were instantly interested, but it actually explained the book right. deeply. Like, I think when people ask me all the time, I get questions about, like, why did you write this? You know, and that's a great, actually a great question. You know, why it, it comes directly from my personal experiences, not yeah. just with asshole academics and their uptight selves, but my, my deeper past also, you know, my childhood is totally implicated in all this. Of course. So, um, yes. Yeah, so connecting one's personal experiences with their high ideas, that's something that academics rarely do. Right. Certainly not in their writing. I think they do it more in their teaching, but in their writing, 
it's burned away. Yeah, completely. It's burned away. No. And in uh, fact, it's seen as disreputable. Yeah, because com- yeah, it's like you're supposed to be an objective scientist, which yeah. anytime somebody say that they are objective, objective. that's always, <clears throat> they are lying through their teeth, yeah, what is, whether they what know is it ob- or not. What is objectivity, right? Yeah. Objectivity is the current dominant paradigm. Right. Whatever that is, that's what's objectively true. So, right. I mean, like it was objectively true a hundred years ago that people of African descent were intellectually inferior to people right. of European descent. That was objectively true. Then it was objectively true that women could never hold professional jobs. Yep. Objectively true. Right. So there's no such thing as objectivity. No. And that's why it's like anytime, regardless of what they are saying after they say they are being objective, they're lying. You it's, know, it doesn't, it's a smokescreen. In the Plato's Republic, which is the greatest book ever written, even though I disagree with everything that Plato believes in, but it's the greatest book ever. In his, the first dialogue he has with Thrasymachus in book one, uh, Thrasymachus says, justice is simply the ideas of the ruling class. Mm-hmm. Whatever, the, whatever the ideas of the ruling class are, that is what truth is. Truth and justice. Right. right. The objective truth. Whatever the object whatever the ruling class of the time thinks, that's what is objectively true. Meaning there's no such thing right. as objectivity or, and I would say, and I do say, truth. Mm-hmm. It's all about interpretation. You can interpret anything in multiple ways. This water bottle. For us, it's a you know, it's a it's a water bottle. And it's a v- vessel with water in it, you know. And people, my students are like, yeah, right. What else could it be? And I'm like, well, how about to a three-year-old? What could it be? Right. Right. It could be something to put their marbles in. It could be a bomb. <laughs> you could throw at someone, a weapon. Um, it could be an ornament, a piece of decoration. It could be a spaceship. Right. A gun. <laughs> it definitely could be a gun, right? Just point it, right? Empty it out and point it. On that note, a good silencer. That's right. Yeah. It's all interpretation. Yeah. One thing that I forgot if it was the Huffington piece or it was something. No, I think it was the bio you sent to your agent that I remember reading that um, toward the end you were talking about how, you know, the rejection of your stuff by the academic world. And you said something. It was a very well-written, eloquent sentence that I completely forget exactly how it was phrased, but it was something along the line of basically fuck if these guys uh, are, don't want to listen to my stuff, I'll settle for everyone else listening mm. to my stuff. Meaning you are going to choose to go a more pop culture route through books, through TV, through you name it, whatever media is going to be well, the one that... I mean, I would love to change the way people think on campuses. Sure. You know, I would love to change the historical profession. I'd um, love to be king of Hawaii too. Partly... What's that? I love to be king of Hawaii, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) partly out of a revenge motive, right? But also because you know that's where we get taught history. Yeah, generally. Although, however, we get taught history and outside of college campuses a lot. So, and if you can change the way people think outside of the ivory tower, then the ivory tower will have to respond to it. Absolutely. So you know, if I if historians shut me out entirely, and by the way, they haven't entirely. I mean, there's. First of all, Occidental College has been really good to me um, and very hospitable. Um, we'll see how long that lasts. But <laughs> um, if, um, if I can change the minds of ordinary people and not professionals, great. Right. That's way more powerful. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. So like, I want to do something that's really terrible, so disreputable, so beneath my profession. 
I want to make television. Yep. You know, I want to make this goddamn book into a TV series, mm-hmm. right? You know, partly to stroke my ego, of course, but also because what's what better way to get your ideas out than of through course. the TV? It's even better than the internet, right? Probably- <clears throat> so let's make television, goddammit. Make it entertaining. I'll reach the people, you know? And if some academic, if the Journal of American History doesn't write about it, wh- so what? All 10 readers will miss your yeah. stuff. And, yeah. yeah, but you're not supposed to do that. Right. You know, that just sullies your ideas. Yep. It brings, you know what it does? It makes you like them. See, yep. academics have this t- profound disdain for ordinary folk. They don't admit it. Although they, sometimes they do, actually. In their disdain for popular culture, they express it. You know, they think, they think what they, most of them think, that what Americans choose to consume is wrong. Yep. They should be doing other things with their lives. Right. Right. Talk about disdain for mm-hmm. people. Right. So make TV, man, make it entertaining. And I want ideas in it. I'm not, I mean, I'm all for Jersey Shore. I'm the only, by the way, I'm the only, <laughs> I am positive. I'm the only PhD in the United States who has watched every episode of Jersey Shore. <laughs> <laughs> Fairly sure. That's it's so case, funny, yes. you know, so a lot of times there's like, you know, there's like uh, cultural studies people, you know, who like do watch that stuff because they write about it. You know, I actually saw this guy, Michael Eric Dyson on this show. He was, he was debating Nelly, the rapper about rap lyrics and how misogynist and violent right. they were, blah, blah, blah. And at one point Nelly said, he said, wait a minute, how come you're watching all these videos, listen to all this music? And Dyson actually said, I, I do that because I'm a cultural critic. Oh my God. I must do that. I was like, okay. Somebody need to be. Well, I watch Jersey Shore because I love it. It's right. fun. I love Snooki. <laughs> I do. I think she's also uh, grossly maligned, unfairly maligned. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, TV. Let's make some TV. Let's kick some ass. Let's do that. Let's kick a lot of ass and make some TV out of it. In the meantime, while we try to figure out how to get to a network uh you guys want to read the book that if you are right wing it will piss you off if you are left wing it will piss you off if you are about any wing it will piss you off a renegade history of the united states there for you thank you so much that thanks man loved it hey baby give me some sugar And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See y'all soon.